Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. The Bible reading for this week is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. As is tradition in this church, after I'm done reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and everyone will respond with, thanks be to God. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I've not yet preached, they are clapping. Only God knows why they are healing. It says it's the native. That means we are here to talk business. Have you? All right. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, particularly good morning to if you are not, um, uh, if this is your, first, it's your first time here, we're so happy to have you. My name is Femi. And also, if it's your second time and third time, that means you've um, decided to repeat and check us out. And so, really happy about that. Thank you for coming. And you came at a good time. We're just about to start a brand new sermon series. Uh, but before I say that, uh, before I get into the the, the, uh, the sermon, I do want to say um, Happy Father's Day as well, uh, but particularly I want to say Happy Father's Day to those whose fathers are no longer with us, or maybe those whose fathers have not been um, in their lives. I know that sometimes they can, this can be a mixed day for certain people, and I just want you to know, first of all, as a church, we all have one father. And even though this father has been, uh, your, your earthly father has been taken away from you, you have a father that can never be taken away from you. And so when we say Happy Father's Day, we mean that to every single person here. Amen? Amen. So let me say one more time, Happy Father's Day to the church. Okay, now, you know the identity of a thing is deeply tied to its purpose. Its purpose or its mission. That is, what a thing is, is tied to what a thing does. This is an event center. Why? Because it hosts events. Cristiano Ronaldo is a footballer. Why? Because he plays football. That place in Ibadan is called Amala Sky. Why? Because they serve heavenly Amala. The identity of a thing is deeply tied to its purpose or its mission. What a thing is, 
is tied to what a thing does. So whenever you meet somebody and they tell you this is who they are, you should ask them, what do you do? And let's take it further. As Christians, or maybe I should say before that, that we do have multiple identities, though. Multiple identities. For instance, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. I'm a bowler. I'm a short caller. I'm a first-class Ijebu fine boy. But the most important identity that I have is tied to the length of the lasting of that identity. The identity that lasts the longest is your most important identity. And as Christians, we like to say that is tied to our identity as defined by God. That is a relationship that will always last forever. Amen. He's our, we are, he's our God. We are his children. But let me tell you another part of that same eternal identity. We are actually, as 1 Corinthians, um, uh, sorry, as 1 Peter 2 verse 9 tells us, we are God's possession. We belong to God. In fact, we are not just God's possession. We are his what? Special possession. Another translation calls it his treasured possession. We belong to him. Now, how is it that we belong to him? It's because, as 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, he has bought us. We don't belong to ourselves. He has bought us, and with what price did he buy us with? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We belong to God. We are his treasured possession. So that's our identity. That's who we are. So if that is who we are, what do we do that is tied to that? What is our purpose? And don't forget, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And therefore, our purpose is going to be defined by him. We don't really have a purpose. He owns us. And therefore, we are called according to his purpose. For all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to what? His purpose, not ours. So he earns the right, if he owns us, to tell us what our purpose is. What is our mission? Now, here's what God does in the words of Jesus. Jesus, when he was about to ascend to heaven, looked at his disciples, and he says this in John 20, verse 21. As the Father sent me on my own mission, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Here's the point. Our mission is tied to Jesus' mission. That's why he put the word as. Is, are we following? So if we are going to know what our own mission and purpose in life is, it's going to be tied to what the purpose and mission of Christ was when he came to the earth. What was Christ's purpose and mission? It's very easy to discern that. We just think about what was Christ born for? What did he come to the earth to do? Because Christ is no longer on the earth. He's left. So we must assume that he fulfilled his purpose after he left. Are we following? He was born for his purpose. He came to the earth for his purpose. So what is Christ's purpose? Well, he tells us actually in a conversation with Pontius Pilate that we confessed about today. In John chapter 18, there's a conversation between two of them and Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then, said Pilate. 
Jesus answered, ah, you said that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was, say it with me, I was what? Born. And, finish it, came into this world is to testify to the truth. The truth that he is a king and that his kingdom is from another place, but that kingdom is going to be established here on earth. What was the purpose of Jesus? Very simple. Because he accomplished it in his death and his resurrection and then he left. And then in his ascension in heaven, he is accomplishing it as well. The purpose of Jesus was to establish and inaugurate his heavenly kingdom on earth. I'll say it one more time. The purpose of Jesus was to establish and inaugurate his heavenly kingdom here on earth. He has achieved that in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Therefore, what is our own purpose for? As the Father sent him, so he's sending us, our purpose is tied to that kingdom. But if any of you dies and resurrects, you're not going to establish that kingdom. Therefore, even though it is tied to it, our purpose is going to be expressed differently. If it has been established and inaugurated, your purpose in life is now to spread that kingdom. Amen. So what is our purpose? Our purpose is to spread the already inaugurated and established kingdom of Christ here on earth. What, who are you? You are God's possession. What is your purpose? Is to, is to spread the established and already inaugurated kingdom of Christ here on earth. Are we still together? Yes. There's one more thing I want to say about that. Because how do we go about doing it? If you were in one of our series in the one, not today, Satan, we said, the kingdom spreads by the word of the kingdom. We've always said that. But there are things that back it up. Because don't forget, if we are God's possession, if we are God's possession, everything that we have belongs to him. 1 Corinthians, 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says this, what is it that you have that you have not what? Received. If you receive it, why do you boast like you own it? Right? We have things, but God owns the things. Should I say that again? We have things, but God owns them. And so tied to our identity as God's possession is this derivative identity, which is what? We are stewards. We have things, but the owner of those things is God. Why? Because God owns us. Is this clear? And so, the things that we have that God owns, he expects us to put those things, to steward those things towards the spread of his kingdom, our very purpose. So, that is why in the reading that Falabi read, Jesus is sending his disciples. And when he sends his disciples, he says, but now, if you have a purse, take it. In other words... The things that we have that are stewarded towards the kingdom of God includes our money. It includes what? Our money. There was a time in the same Gospel of Luke, in Luke 10, that Jesus told them, don't take a purse. You see, at that time, Jesus was still around. But here in Luke 22 verse 35, he says, but now, what is but now? Now is, I am about to go. Because I'm about to go, I'm not going to be with you now. Take the purse. And you and I are in that time where he says, go, spread this gospel, and take your purse with you. And so this is what I'm trying to say. 
When we talk about money, we have to set it within the larger context of the purpose for which we have been called. Our money is intricately tied to our mission of spreading the kingdom of God. This is what this whole series is going to be about. And it's important for us to understand that larger context, and I'm still going to explain that larger context this, in this sermon, and hopefully that opens up our eyes to the other sermons that will be preached here. I really do believe this, that this is going to be one of the most important series that we've ever done in this church. I think it's absolutely pivotal for our thinking. It's absolutely pivotal for our identity. So I don't want you to miss any sermon in this series. Amen. And I do pray that as God opens up our minds and our spirits, God will open up the heavens towards our account in the name of Jesus. I pray that as we grow wiser, as we grow wiser in everything, as we go through the series, you will also grow wiser in the aspects of your finances in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord for his presence. Lord God Almighty, we ask you for your presence right now, particularly in understanding. This is such a sensitive topic, and it can, in many ways, be misunderstood. But Lord God Almighty, we thank you for your spirit of truth. We pray, oh God, that this spirit of truth will come, O oh Lord, and illuminate our minds. I pray, Lord God Almighty, that the spirit of error will not come close to us in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray for enlightenment. That the entrance of your word bring light and understanding to the simple. Spirit of God, captivate our hearts. We pray for every stubborn heart, Lord. We pray that it will move by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would reinforce, O oh God, your word to us and liberate us, O oh God, into the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, we are going to go at an aerial view. We are in the forest, not the trees. You go an aerial view so that we can understand the ground level view today. All right? So the title of this sermon we've called The Mission of a Steward. The Mission of a Steward. And we look at it under these three headings. The poor church, the wealthy church, and the rich gospel. The poor church, the wealthy church, and the rich gospel. Let's start with the first one, the poor church. Turn to your neighbor and say, poverty is evil. Turn to your other neighbor and say, poor people are not evil. But poverty is evil. Don't ever mistake it. Don't ever try to be neutral. Don't ever try to glorify it. None of us like poverty. Amen? But people say, oh, poor people, what about poor people? The people that hate poverty the most are poor people. This is what Proverbs 10, Proverbs 10 verse 15 puts it this way. It says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. But, the the po but poverty is the ruin of the poor. Notice, it makes a distinction between poverty and who? The poor. The ruin of the poor is what? Poverty. The poor hate poverty. Poverty is an evil. It, it devastates our lives in many ways. One way it does is that it brings, it leads to danger. Many people, some I know, they will lie to themselves about their health. You know why? They will see symptoms of bad health. You know what, why they lie to themselves? They don't want to go to the hospital. Why? Because they can't afford it. People have lost their lives because of that. Poverty leads people to sin. They betray one another. I was once at an airport going through the customs and then they tried to accost me and went to try and collect money and everything. I said, I'm a pastor. He said, ah, you're a pastor. I said, I can pray for you. I can't give you money. 
I said, what should I pray for you? One of the people that was trying to get money from me, and they put a fake, uh, if you don't have this thing, you have to pay this money. He said, please pray for me. My child is on a dialysis machine. So he was corrupt, yes, but the poverty stopped him and enabled him to be corrupt. But what that gets to me is the indignity of poverty. The indignity of poverty. I was still saying that in the elections in Ondo State, or the AKT State, one of them, that they were, selling, they were giving 10,000 naira to people on the queue to change their votes. 10,000 naira to change their votes. And sometimes you may say, well, maybe that doesn't apply to me. But on Instagram recently, I saw they, somebody put a post that said, will you sell out your spouse for $10 billion? <laughs> I looked at it. I said, <laughs> I said it to my spouse. I said, I will. I will sell you out. I said, then after it, I will give you $1 billion to wipe your tears. <laughs> just, just wipe, $1 billion. She will be happy. But that's the indignity of poverty. In fact, one of it is more collective. We understand, we, almost all of us, almost all of us understand this particular one. Visa applications. At that point now, it's not about your own personal poverty. It's our own poverty as a country. Visa application. You will, they will tell you that if your appointment is 9.45. All of you that come, to late, come late to church, you will get there at 6.30. <laughs> the sun has not yet come up. It's not yet a new day dawning. And you go there, we line up as though we're in primary school. Then one security guard that has not even seen, he hasn't even seen the inside of that place. Move here, you two, you move here. Sorry, sir. <laughs> you will carry, you know, envelopes. Envelopes like, like you are trying to get your pension or something. We'll be moving up and about, moving there. Then you enter one place, or you remove all your things there, quickly move. You'll be carrying your children. They'll say, Daddy, why are, we, why, are we, uh, why are we lining up? Like, just keep quiet, just keep quiet. Eventually, you'll not get in front of, of one, one, uh, one booth. Somebody behind uh, uh, the booth there telling you, yes, what's your name? Somebody that is not older than you. Somebody that probably doesn't have the same qualifications that you. You'll be shaking, shaking, shaking. you say, yeah, speak up, speak up. Is, is it my fault that you put something in front of you? Well, you know, we all be saying, yes, sir. No, sir. We will have dressed in three-piece suit. Everything. In dignity of the other. And later they'll say, we're not giving you the visa now. You say, ah, but what? Stop, stop, stop. I'll call the security person. You have to go now. Indignity. We cannot see anything because of poverty. God punish poverty. <laughs> because Ecclesiastes 7 verse 12 tells us, listen, we can't talk. Poverty, he says, just as wisdom is a defense, riches is what? A defense. Or in another translation, he calls it a protection. In this translation, he calls it a shelter. Can I tell you a secret? But it's not, it's an open secret. Let's take this thing that I started talking about the visa thing. Let's take it to another place. The Western world, the Western world, after I say this one, I can't apply for visa again. No problem. The Western world needs or wants Africa to be poor. Consciously or unconsciously, the Western world needs or wants Africa to be poor. There is a formula for it. Because you think, ah, they, 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 they help us. It is give aid, take resources. That's the formula. Give aid, take resources. Let me tell you. Before, when we were in colonial, uh, colonialist times, eh, they used to build infrastructure. Almost all these are train lines and all of those things. It was there. After colonialism, infrastructure uh, investment went out. Do you know what they started giving us? Aid. 
Aid and slaves, infrastructure actually empowers. What is it when they keep when somebody keeps giving you aid, keeps giving you aid, what is the mentality that's built into you? That I need to go to that person for help. But you see, aid is given not to lift you up. Aid is given just to maintain you to a particular level so that you go back and you collect aid again. Are you following me? They have been giving us aid for 60 years. How come it hasn't helped? Most of them know this. The data is there for 60 years. That 70 to 75% of the aid that is given to you is actually, cor it is taken away by corruption. Why do they keep giving it to us? Ah, now is the secret. Aid is a big industry. Aid is a big what? Industry. People's jobs are tied to it. If they cannot give us aid, what happens to all those people that are doing research on aid? <laughs> you don't understand. Whilst they are giving us statutory money to buy mosquito net, all of those things, the people that are coming to tell us to buy mosquito net, they are sleeping in southern sun. I am not joking about this. They are sleeping in southern sun. They are going to knock Alara to have their meetings. Eh? They are spending all of that money. They are accumulating air miles so that they can carry their children for holiday. They have a, 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 a school fees of their children paid for. All of these things. And you think they want to stop giving us the aid? But we can't talk. We, they're here. Sorry, no. For those of you who work here, continue. Um, God bless your hustle. God bless your hustle. But this one is just, it's just, it's just fact that we're saying. And here's what I'm trying to say. Instead of giving us aid, we need infrastructure. But the problem with infrastructure is that it will develop us. So what do they do? Remember I said give aid, take resources. So what do they do? Let me give you the prime example. Cocoa. Cocoa. Oh, cocoa. Cocoa. We are unable to make value-added products, aren't we? So we give the cocoa for, let's say, 2 naira. They now make chocolate, and they sell back to us at 12 naira. See, oh, lint, it tastes so nice. Where did the cocoa come from? It's not Switzerland. It's from West Africa. And then maybe sometimes, some of you want to buy it cheaply. Now say, okay, instead of, instead of us exporting it to you, you know what? Why don't you buy a ticket for 10 naira? And they come over and you buy lint. You don't have to buy it now at 12 naira. You can just buy it at 6 naira. So we take our own money. We apply visa. We give them the visa fees. We buy. It's not our own uh, airline. We pay money for that one. We get into that place. All their taxes, we still carry our naira and give it to them. But at some point, you know, because they're having less and less children, they don't have anybody to put in their factories. So they devise something called a point-based system. Visa. And then they take our best resources, human resources, and they take away. And this keeps us in a place of perpetual aid. And we cannot say anything. You know why we can't say anything? Give me uh, Proverbs 13 verse 18. Uh, verse 8. A person's riches may ransom their life, but the poor cannot respond to threatening rebukes. If they threaten us like this, to call this aid, we will keep quiet. You know why? Because we have no voice. Because we have nothing to stand on. This is what poverty does. We lose our voice. They don't care for our opinions. They don't care for us to participate in any decision at all. All they care is for our representation. Come around. We love your music. Your cultural richness. You know, wear some dashiki for us. Let's take a photograph to show that we are truly global. The paternalism is disgusting. And you want me to be neutral about poverty? God punish poverty. It is evil. It makes people lose their voice. 
But assuming we were rich, at that point, we will state our opinion. They may not like it, but they will respect us. This is what poverty does. Now, if I can take this further, if it is true that the West need, and by this I am not, again, I'm not preaching hatred to the West. If you do that, that is not Christian. I am actually talking about preaching hatred to poverty. If it is true that the West would like Africa to be poor, here's another one. The world wants the church to be poor. You see, in the passage that we read, there's going to be a very confusing thing there because Jesus tells them to sell what they have and they should go and get swords. Now you say, yeah, is Jesus telling us to lead armed rebellions? There is nothing in the teaching of Jesus that tells us to do that. The swords there are metaphoric. And you can even see in verse 38, when they say, ah, Lord, we don't need to go and buy swords. Here are two swords. And he said, enough. And the original translation is more of enough about this sword talk. Is the way in listening. What Jesus was saying with the swords there is that I am sending you into a hostile world. And so you have to have a defensive posture to the people that you are trying to convert. It's not a defensive. We are not warring against people. We are being sent to go and convert people because we love them. However, we must recognize that the world that we are going into is hostile against us. And so he says, carry the sword. Again, it is metaphoric. But he also says, carry the purse. In other words, the purse is also a shelter for you. Remember in our, in our satire, not, not today, Satan, we said that the way the enemy comes against the church is through deception, is through uh, uh, persecution, and is through uh, uh, a distraction. But let me also add to you that the impoverishment of the church is also a form of satanic warfare. Maybe I should open, let's open Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 14. This is a stunning scripture. You have seen it, maybe you've seen it before, but maybe it didn't hit you that much. The way it hit me as well. Ecclesiastes 14. There was once a small city. Somebody say small city. With only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it surrounded it and built huge siege works against it. Stop. Stop. Go back. Right? He built huge siege works against it. The city is small. There are very few people. The king is, is powerful. He's coming from a powerful nation. He built siege works around it. In other words, that city is absolutely finished. Now, verse 15. Now, they lived in that city a man poor but wise. And do you know what happened? He saved the city by what? His wisdom. He saved the city by what? His wisdom. Now let's read the last, the second part together. But what? Nobody. Hey God. Ah God. May God deliver us. Notice, he did not say, nobody remember that wise man. When you are poor, you are more identified by your poverty than your wisdom. In fact, he is not a poor wise man. He is a wise poor man. He is a poor man that happens to be wise. And so as a result of that, in fact, they said nobody what? Remembered him. Go to verse 16. So I said, 
wisdom is better than strength. Indeed, because the wisdom saved the city against the, the powerful king, isn't it? So wisdom is better than strength. However, the poor man's wisdom is what? Despised. And his words are no longer he dead. Why? Because he is what? A poor man. At some point, even, look, nobody is scared of a church praying. Nobody is scared of the church, you know, doing good things, social things for the world. Nobody has to continue doing that. God forbid that the church has some money. Can I tell you that, listen, a doctrinally sound, socially conscious, evangelistically inspired, prayerfully zealous, poor church can only do so much. I have seen them. They can only do what? So much. They will do some good, but after they have done that good, in a little while, people will forget that good and they will despise them even for that good. What are, you, what are you saying here? And here's the catch because we don't see how Satan works. All of a sudden, if the church has been praying for this one, if the church has been attending this person's funeral, if the church, after uh, they give the pastor maybe voucher to go to Chicken Republic and think that should be okay for him, when they want to have real big conversations that we don't bring them there now, God forbid the church now starts to gain money and starts to have certain things. All hell will now break loose. That is when conversations, including we in the church, conversations start coming about, oh my, this pastor is having too much basil. Do you see the designer bag that his wife was carrying? This uh, screen that we bought, is it a good use of money? We now start talking about inside, inside the church. We start talking about how you're spending money on this. This place, the rent is too much. When the place was very hot, you are saying it was hot. But once you now got a place where it's very, very cool, you now say, are we spending the money? Why is this money going to? Are you hearing what I'm saying? It is satanically motivated because nobody wants the church, the church of the living God, who is trying to make temporary, but also eternal significance. Nobody wants them to have that platform. You, quest, you forget them when they have a little platform, but you question them when what? They have a larger platform. Are you seeing this thing? And many times we don't see that it is satanically motivated. Satan understands. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that the gospel is the gospel because we have money. No. The gospel spreads. Uh, uh, sorry, the kingdom is not the kingdom because we have money. The kingdom spreads by people believing the word of the kingdom. But I can tell you, it is money that fuels the spread of that thing. It is money. To buy sound system. Do you think you buy sound system by faith? No, seriously. This screen that you are seeing here, do you think uh, we just prayed it, we prayed it to be in? We prayed, oh, but people donated. Are you following what I'm saying? You people are sitting down on all these nice chairs looking all so good and everything. You know that we are doing campaign. We don't go and meet the developer of this place and say, you know, we are doing wonderful things for the kingdom. Pay me my money. Satan knows that. And so Satan attacks this issue of money. Let me tell you how he attacks it. He attacks it. Satan knows that there is a value chain for being missional. And so he attacks us in different ways at the different points of the value chain. Let me give you six ways. He stops us in doing certain things. Six. First one, at the very, at the very origin. He stops us from talking about money. To talk about money in church is a problem. Listen, many times when I was recruiting people to serve on staff, some of them are here, we talk about everything, we talk about everything, then we're not getting to money, then the person looks down. <laughs> then the person starts saying, it's not like, I'm not doing this thing for money, so why are you here? 
I'm not doing it for money. I just, I just want to love God. My friend, you need money. I know many pastors, it is killing their ministries. They are suffering. Their wives are suffering, but they cannot say anything because people don't want to be perceived as being greedy. Even down to basic needs. Satan allows us to stop talking about money. That's the first one. The second one, if we do start talking about money, the second one is this. He stops us from uniting around money. That is when one daddy will come out on radio and some other daddies on their pulpits. And there's a battle between the daddies. That's when someone will say, all these pastors are all about money. This other one is saying, pastors don't care about money. Everything is, everything, we start to divide. We don't divide, we don't, we have good conversations around whether or not, uh, let us say that uh, maybe salvation is it by faith or by faith and works, where is the faith and the work. We have good conversations and after we go have a drink together, have some food together. But you drop in money like this, everything explodes. And I am not saying we cannot have conversations about money. Here's the problem. Is this, you see, there is a certain level of obsessiveness about their positions or a certain level of lack of love towards the other person that is meant to be your brother or sister. Are you even sure you're a Christian? Because of their view on money, you'll be asking. Then if he doesn't succeed there and you move forward, the third one is he stops us and this one, we're going to deal with this one. He stops us from making money. He makes people feel guilty. Christians feel guilty that they are charging. That they are charging. You understand? Yeah, you know, ah, but, ah, we can't put this one because, eh, because somehow we have convinced ourselves that God doesn't want us to really make money, even though we are making. Some of us are making money. So some Christians feel guilty about it. I know people who have said that ah, they don't want to buy a certain kind of jeep. They don't want to because they don't want people to think that they are not spiritual. You see somebody wearing a certain kind of clothes, like, is this one spiritual? So, look at them. Look at, <laughs> look at you. He stops us from making money. It kills, I've seen many Christians, their ambitions, they can be more ambitious than they are, but they just feel like to be ambitious is almost, is almost, you know, ungodly. Listen, there's godly ambition and there's ungodly ambition. May God give you godly ambition. Yeah. Fourth one, if we do make the money, he stops us from giving the money. Then the daddies come back again. The world, the daddies come back again. But we don't know that he's using greed in us to make stinginess common in our homes and generosity scarce in the church. So we are very comfortable. We buy that big screen. We take that holiday. We do all of that. We know how to spend it. But when it comes to church, we start, eh, what? Just, do you have a project? Do you have a project? Let me just help you with that. Fifth one. If we do give the money, he stops us from managing the money well. So whether it's in church world or parachurch world, the way we use money, partly is because we have recruited mediocres, I'm sorry to say. And so we just spend money on projects that don't make sense, on terrible t-shirts and terrible mugs, as though that is what is going to use, uh, the kingdom is going to come to that. By the way, if you want to get our t-shirt later this year... <laughs> We promise you, the t-shirt, the t-shirt is really good. <laughs> but oftentimes, we just, you see mismanagement of money in a way that does not optimize the mission. Projects that we shouldn't spend on, programs that we shouldn't spend on. So we just use, and you know, once it doesn't work well, hey, let's just move on to the next one because church people will always give their money. But then the last one is this. 
He stops us from utilizing the money. And if, the, if I said not giving money was about greed, it was greed with the people in the church. But when it comes to not utilizing money, it is greed for the people that run the church. This is when greed plus lack of financial accountability equals the siphoning of money at worst and sometimes just financial impropriety at, at best. And this ends up not allowing us to use the money well for mission and actually brings about legitimate eroding of trust in the church. Satan is at work and he wants to prevail against the church of the living God. But I have good news to tell you. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Have you not seen that even when churches are being destroyed left, right and center, God always comes in and he raises new churches. Have you not seen that even when churches are preaching heresy left, right and center, God always raises truth-bearing churches. I say to you by the word of the Lord that if there are broke, dying churches, God is going to continue to raise wealthy churches that will revive those churches, that will plant new churches, that will bring about innovative ways of continuing his mission in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Satan will not dry this thing up. We will talk about it. And we will unite around it. Amen? Amen? And you will make money. And you will give the money. And we will manage the money well. And we will send the money out on mission. Can I get an amen? amen. So that takes me to my second point. The wealthy church. And I want to talk about this a little bit, but I need to root it in some kind of, in some, in some, in some theological um, uh, context. Because if you want to talk about the wealthy church, it's important to see what the gospel is achieving. What does the gospel achieve? In one sense, the gospel, what the gospel, the goal of the gospel is, is to restore us to a, an unhindered relationship with God. The goal of the gospel is to restore us to an unhindered relationship with God. In fact, let me put a full unhindered relationship with God. It is not what Adam and Eve had. It is what Adam and Eve had and more. You see, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they said that they had fellowship with God, that God would talk to them in the cool of the day. However, there was a tree of life that was there. Are you following me? They had not eaten from the tree of life. The tree of life represents eternal life. So when Adam and Eve fell, what happened? They, re, their relationship with God was broken. And it signified from the fact, see Genesis chapter 3, uh, 20, 22. It signified that they were banished from the garden. They were banished from the presence of God. They were banished from the source of eternal life. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of the garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So this was, the, this was the, the falling part of humanity. So what God does through the Bible is restoring us back to where? To the tree of life. Are you following? So the good news, the bad news is that we have been banned from the presence of God. We can't have uh, access to the tree of life. The good news then is that through what Jesus Christ has done, we can now have access to the tree of life. Are you following? Now, but the tree of life is in God's presence. So what we need more than anything is God's presence. So after God called Abraham, and Abraham had his children, and those ones had the children, they now had a nation. This nation was meant to be God's own nation. God's own nation. How will we know that they, will, they are God's nation? Yes, they can have God's law, they can have a covenant, but the most important way of knowing that these people will be God's people is how? 
he will dwell among them. God's presence will be there as a picture of what God is trying to achieve to bring us back to him. Are you following? So in Exodus 25 verse 8 and 9, God said to Moses, then after he has established his covenant with them in Exodus 24, he says, then have them make what? A sanctuary for me. Why? For what? And what? Say it out. And what was the sanctuary called? A tabernacle. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Very spiritual, isn't it? Restoring the presence of God. Build this tabernacle and build the tabernacle by faith. Abi, God has everything. How is the tabernacle meant to be built? Give me Exodus 25 verse 1 to 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me what? An offering. Money was tied to it too. Tell the Israelites to bring me what? An offering. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Somebody say, ah, and Moses is far. Is far. I'm, not going to take, I'm not going to go into this passage, but when it was time to build Solomon's temple, first of all, you know, they say, Happy Father's Day, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children, right? David did not allow Solomon to, get, to have the money for the temple. David got all the money. We are going to look at that in another sermon later. But in 1 Chronicles 29, you will see it. To build the temple, the tabernacle was a temple, but it was a mobile temple. They could reconstruct it, put it back, reconstruct it, put it back. When they got into the promised land, to build the temple, the people gave offerings here and there. Money was tied to that temple. As per the restoration of the presence of God with his people. And somebody said, eh, that one is old, what? That one is old, what? What is the greatest manifestation of the temple on, on earth? You see, in Ezekiel 24, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 14, 47, we are told about the last day temple. And one of the things, as you've read before, some of us will have read before, is that there is a river that comes out of that temple. And that river heals whatever it goes through. Amen. Keep that in mind. Now, don't forget the temple is the meeting place between who? God and humanity. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was so there was the word that was God, and that the word that there was God that was not the word, right? Now this word is God. Now look at verse 14. The word that is God became what? And made what? It's because it's not in the Hebrew or the Greek. The, the, Greek, the, the, the Hebrew translation of this is the exact word that leads to what? Tabernacle. Don't forget what was his, his purpose. is to dwell among what? Then. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But who is the word? The word is who? God. So God is what? Dwelling among his people. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The greatest manifestation of the temple of God is Jesus Christ. Why? Because the temple is the meeting place between God and man. The greatest manifestation of the temple is God that is a man. Are we following? So Jesus was a temple moving up and about. That is why in John chapter 7, you don't have to open it. John chapter 7, on the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus says, come to me and come and drink. For the scriptures have said that out of him shall flow rivers of living water. So when Jesus was moving around, healing people, he was saying, 
that is a sign of the old kingdom now when you come in contact with the temple you will receive the healing what of the kingdom that is to come the healing water that flows from the kingdom am i speaking to someone so jesus was the manifestation of this temple moving about and since jesus wants everything jesus doesn't need anything for his own temple he has all the money he wants right open to luke chapter 8 after this jesus traveled about from one town village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom the 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases right he was curing them the the, the kingdom and the life that was coming out of that from the seven uh, and uh, mary called magdalene from whom seven demons had come out ah, now what for how <laughs> joanna the wife of Chosa, the manager of herod's household susanna and many others he calls them for a reason these women were helping to what these women were helping to support what them out of their own means jesus needed people the mobile temple the man, full manifestation of temple jesus needed money and the wonderful thing is that he was it was it was women that were supporting him may god make joanna's here may god, you are not raising up your hand all right may god make susanna's here in the name of jesus and the men well may god make herod's here because it's herod's wife and they don't want that one herod's wife okay see even when you go to the end of the bible the book of revelation in revelation 21 when now we are now fully in the presence of god Right? Why he says there is no more temple. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the lamp are his temple. Now we don't need a mediating structure. It still says there, let's keep reading. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is its lamp. Okay? The nations will walk by its light and the king of the earth will bring that splendor that he's talking about. Is, is the produce of their own nations. They will bring their splendor into it. Keep going. On that day, the uh, gates will not be shut. And all the, the glory and the honor of the nations, the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. It is like Nigeria carrying crude oil into the place. Are you following me? Whenever you see the temple, you always see the people of God bringing their offering. Even Paul, when Paul was going to the whole book of Romans, that we like to quote theology and everything, we don't actually understand the reason why Paul wrote Romans. You know why Paul wrote Romans? Because he wanted to go to Spain to go and minister there. That was why he wrote Romans. And he was going to pass through Rome. And he found out that the guys in Rome were fighting over Jew and Gentile stuff. So he wrote about the gospel to show that he unites Jews and Gentiles. Paul needed them to be united when he comes. And this is why, open to Romans 15, uh, Romans 15. He says, he wants to do that because there's a certain reason. Paul says about his own ministry. Because of the grace of God, God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty, he doesn't call it the prophetic duty, the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. When you hear priest, what building are you thinking about? Temple. He's talking about the preaching of the gospel. And he's saying the priestly duty. So that the Gentiles might become what? An offering. You see temple language again. An offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The preaching of the gospel itself is a temple spreading thing. And so Paul says, I want to take it to this other place of the Gentiles. Now go to verse 23 and verse 24. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, that's the east. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, 
I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through to have you. The Greek word for that is not assist like pray for me. He had a lot of prayers. He had a lot of prayers. Everywhere it is used is to assist me with what? Money. Guys, you may say then there is no more temple. We are not. Do you know what 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says about the church? You know what 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says? You are like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. That spiritual house is a spiritual temple. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. If Moses built a temple and needed money, if David built a temple, was going to build a temple and needed money, if Jesus was a temple and he needed money, if Paul was doing temple ministry and needed money, then we, the church, what do we need? Let me tell you, as much as I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I'm not ashamed of asking for money too. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for Moses, it's good enough for David, what am I ashamed of? Amen? Amen. But the issue here is what the money is used for. Do you see that it was brought into the mission of God? Again, I'm saying it's not that we become a wealthy church just because we want people to look at us. We become a wealthy church so that we can have the platform to move the gospel. Amen. Somebody will say, what about the poor? Let me tell you, if you, the church should serve the poor. The church should be among the poor. But the church can only serve the poor if the church is not poor. Does that logic fit into your brain? We can't give what we don't have. Amen. And so, listen, because the church also, if the church has to be wealthy, because the church is not, is not primarily, we are not a for-profit organization. Do you understand? We actually primarily dwell on the donations of our members. And therefore, if the church is going to be wealthy, I have good news for you, you must be wealthy. You didn't hear well. You must be wealthy. I pray that the Lord will make you stupidly wealthy. You know, there's a difference between stupid and stupid. May God, may God open up the windows of heaven to you. This thing is very serious. Very, very serious. And it's a bit personal to me because let me tell you. Remember, I said, the, 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 the Western world wants Africa to be poor. The, the world wants the church to be poor. Do you know the only thing worse than that? The only thing worse than the two? It is being a poor African church. Double wala for... I'm telling you, this thing is personal to me. Because in my lifetime, I know what it is to be a Christian in the world. I know what it is to be an African living in the West. I know what it is to be an African Christian in Western Christianity. I know what it is to be an African pastor among Western pastors. Go funny. It's not funny. You're, see, there is a lot of well-meaning, unintentional, loving disrespect and insults that is thrown your way. I'm not even joking. Like, I remember being in my church in the West. I was advising a couple. I've been married for a few years. I was advising a couple of young guys who were thinking of getting married. They were, they were you know, pussyfooting with the girls and they weren't, you know. And I was just telling them about, look, you have to commit. You have to commit that uh, by the time you get into marriage, that uh, what holds the marriage is not just the love. It's the commitment that drives the love. That you have to commit. And there was one nice old lady that I said, ah, what? 
I said, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, we believe in love. I know you come from a place where I heard that they just give people in marriage to other people. But here, we, we believe in love. Ah, God. This one was not Christianity. I said, if I was like your people, if I was like your Western children that are spoiled, I would say, excuse me, ma, with due respect, and you know, every time we say with due respect, what comes out is not respectful. It was the African in me that constrained me that you should not disobey or dishonor your elders. I kept quiet. I kept quiet. When I was about to come and we wanted to plant this church and I was seeking support from my own church, the missionary committee, the missionary committee said, ah, there was one lady that she had been in Africa, a missionary in Africa for 40 years. That should take my plan and go and speak to her. Okay, I went to the She came. I was a nice lady. I was even trying to whatever. I now said, this is what I'm trying to do. The lady, before I could finish, she started asking me questions. Well, what denomination are you going to be? Eh, well, we're not going to be denomination. No, you have to join one. I said, well, we don't really believe in Jesus. No, just join one. Whether it's Presbyterians, whether it's, you can't just do it that way in Africa. Africa doesn't work like that. Africa doesn't. Wow. She just started saying things that didn't make sense. And eventually, that woman went to tell the missionary committee that that African is not good enough for planting a church in Africa. I wasn't worth investing in. And you just... <laughs> Recently, a friend of mine, a friend of mine who is a, a pastor in, in East Africa, doing great work there, but he's, he's involved with a particular organization and he's trying to, you know, they were meant to, the organization wants to invest in trying to do good work in Africa. And the guy is there, the point guy. And they were coming to do some kind of evangelism thing. And the guy was planning all the things that need to be done based on his experience. And then the person there, of course, who is funding it, sends him a document. This person has never been to his country before. Sends him a document about the two-day evangelistic program and how everything is going to go. Turn to your neighbor and say, we need our own money. This insult cannot continue. Do you, do you understand? Now, all of these people are well-intentioned. Don't get me wrong. That's why I'm saying you cannot hit them. But there is a sense in which that their own Christianity is also being shaped by their own experiences. And since he who pays the piper what, the takes the tune, we who are trying to, who are getting money from them, we say, yes, sir, yes, sir. We can't do anything. We need our own money to be liberated from them to preach the gospel to our own people. I don't know how many of you have heard of a writer called Tony Morrison. Tony Morrison was a great African-American writer. She passed away a few years ago. Great woman, great writer. At a time in her writing, she used to write, and people were giving her good rave reviews, but she felt dissatisfied. There was, something, there was something in the writing that she just wasn't feeling fulfilled by. Then one day, she stumbled on a book called Things Fall Apart by Chino Achebe. And she said, and I quote, Chino Achebe liberated me as a writer. And how? What did, she, what did she mean? She said, because when I read Chino Achebe, I realized that he was writing without the effect of the Western gaze upon him. Do you know what that is? She said, whenever she was writing, she always felt like there was a white person around her shoulder. And so instead of writing for her people and to write out of her own experience, she always wrote to please 
the white person. Do you understand? He said, when I read Chino Achebe, I realized he was writing for his own people. And if you wanted to understand what he was writing, you had to come from your own context and understand their context and then, and then follow what he was going. That he liberated her from the white gaze. Can I tell you that we need to have this gospel in a way that is liberated from the western gaze. And the only way that happens is when we are able to fund our own missions. Amen. Amen. So let me put it in a, let me give you a, my manifesto. It's a manifesto. It's a manifesto and I'm serious. In how we reach our people. The Afro, this is the manifesto, the Afro gospel needs to be funded by Afro-capitalism. The Afro-gospel needs to be funded by Afro-capitalism. Let me explain. What do I mean by Afro-gospel? Somebody say, are you bringing another gospel? No. The Afro-gospel is the same one and only gospel, but it is the gospel that has been reflected upon through African lenses because it's thoroughly in tune with African realities so that it can best convert African people. He said, ah, but can't we just preach the normal gospel? I said, which one? It is the gospel, but which one? First of all, read your Bible. You have four accounts of the gospel. Isn't it? We say Mark's gospel. We say Luke's gospel. We say John's gospel. We say, uh, who's on? Matthew's gospel. Or let's put it another way. The right way is actually the gospel according to Mark. According to Mark's vantage point. Mark as a uh, Matthew, uh, first of all, according to Matthew as a, as a tax collector, according to Matthew as a Jewish person writing to a Jewish audience. And so that is why Matthew includes certain things that Luke, who is a rich doctor, is Luke that writes a lot about poverty, do you know, and inclusion. You know why? People think, ah, it's the gospel for the poor. No, the gospel of Luke is the gospel for the rich. Luke is writing to his own people. Like, if this thing is true about what Jesus has done, you should not be excluding those people and that people and that people. Do you understand now? So from their different vantage points, they are writing about the one same gospel. Have you not heard what Paul says that God will judge the secret of men's heart according to what? My gospel. Ah, but Paul, is it not the gospel? Yes, but my gospel, in the gospel that God has given me, particularly to read the Gentiles, that's why in Galatians chapter 2, he said, God gave me the gospel to the uncircumcised in the same way that he gave the gospel to who? To Peter in the circumcised. And I'm telling you, it is the same gospel, but it can never be presented the same way. And in that sense, there are certain things about us, Lagosians, that people that are not Lagosians cannot understand. There are certain things about us as Africans that Western people cannot understand. And each time we always have to depend on their money as though it is aid, they will want to shape the way we do things. May God liberate us from that. Now, the way we do that is if we ourselves have our own money, and the way we have our money is the money must come from where you are making the money. Where do you think Western people get their money from? Do you think it's from the sky? It's from the economy that they have there. So we have to be committed. You have to be committed. You have to be committed to growing this, this, this continent. And when I mean that is because if this continent grows, we who are Christians and participate in this continent, we also will grow. And if we grow, the wealth of the continent will come into the church and then we don't have to be looking for people to be sending us money as though it is aid. Is somebody hearing what I'm saying? Listen, in this thing, Psalm 68 verse 29, 30 and 31 is 
pivotal for me. In Psalm 68, it looks forward to the time of the end. Remember that whole temple thing? It says, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. He's talking about the end. Which kings will bring gifts? Verse 30 and verse 31. Envoys will come from where? And Cush will submit herself. Cush is where is modern, uh, modern day North Sudan. Cush will submit herself to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Listen. The kingdoms of the earth cannot sing the praises to God until Cush and, uh, and uh, uh, Egypt sends its envoys and Cush is submitted to the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the nations can, the whole world cannot sing the praise to God unless Africa too is there. Come on. And when he talks about, he says envoys will come from Egypt. When he says envoys will come from Egypt, they will be bearing the gifts of Egypt. Now when he says that Cush will submit, what he's saying is this, what are the two? People will bring their things, but these ones will submit. The bringing of our goods to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem is evidence that we are converted, we are submitted to the Lord. But notice they had goods that they had to bring. And so these goods I'm saying is that God, may God bless Africa. Amen. Let me tell you, if you read about some of the ways that things have been destroyed, why is it that we have 50-something currencies? We can't do transactions with each other. We want to do transactions with each other. We have to still convert. If I want to go to Kenya, it's shillings. I have to convert to dollars first. From Naira to dollars, then I'll not go there and I'll convert to. So money is still going out from the West when I'm trying to transact here. There's no, there's no rail between Lagos, Kotonou, Lome. You have to fly how much? Do you know that it takes you longer to fly to Dakar? than it is to fly to London. Totally disconnected. And I'm trying to say this. It is connected to us as the gospel. Because if we are economically in a bad place, then also we can't fund ourselves and take this gospel. Am I talking to somebody? That is why I believe, not just in this, in, in this nation, but in this church, God will raise gospel patrons in the name of Jesus. God will fill your pocket. God will bless your endeavors. God will get all those who are stuck in business ideas. God will give you business ideas. Those who are stuck in your, in your, in your organization, you can't move. You have been moving horizontal, horizontal. May God raise you up vertically in the name of Jesus. For this gospel will go forward. Not for our own gain. Not for our own gain. If you have somebody here and it is lack of ambition, that is doing you, I pray that God will deliver you from it. Amen. Aim to be a partner in your, in your organization. Aim to be a CEO of your organization. And we're going to deal with some of those. Listen, listen we're not playing. Two weeks from now, and I'll say it in the announcement, two weeks from now, we're doing a seminar, financial seminar. We're getting the best heads in this, in this, in this church. We are going to ensure where to come to this church because what is coming to you guys. Amen. Amen. Egypt must pay its homage to Yahweh. Cush must submit herself to the Lord. This Afro-Gospel needs to be funded by Afro-Capitalism. And let me just say one more word. Some people say that I'm against people jackpine. They are right. They are right. Not against you jackpine. Like I, if somebody, a lot of people have come to meet me, our pastor, we are leaving. I say, oh, I pray for them. But let me, let, me, let me encourage some of you. Let me encourage some of you. I really do believe that, I was talking with somebody recently, and I'm not playing, I'm, I look at history in all of these things. There's a brain drain that's been happening. Check, after every brain drain, not too long after, there is a, there is a rising 
economic rising after the brain drain. And the many people that have left that want to come back for that brain drain, they find they cannot fit in again. I'm telling you, yes, people are leaving, they will leave. For those of you that stay, wait and see. Wait and see what God is going to do here. But I also want to talk to some of you that are thinking about leaving, to actually reconsider, not your own life just personally, reconsider trying to live, some, uh, live for something that is bigger than you. Let's build this continent together. Now, for some of you that have to leave, okay, if you want to go, study, go and study, come back. Because some people say, you, you are saying that should be you to your jackpot. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. Come back. For some of you who say, ah, no, I can't come back and everything, it's no problem. Send remittance. <laughs> but don't stop the remittances. Are we together? You are, whether you go to Canada or you go to UK, you are African, no? And believe me, by the time you get there and you work for a while, they'll let you know you're Africa. So, Psalm 68, verse 31 to 32, God has put that upon you. God has put that upon you. We must do our best to raise this continent. Now, we are different from the secularists. We're not just raising this continent so that Africa can be, I don't know. We are raising this continent so that Kush may submit itself to God. When we pray, you will see certain things. All right, let me, let me quickly finish. Last one, because I can see the time and I can see Pelumi. Um, all right, the rich gospel. Someone says that this, this thing you have just said is dangerous. This is not what I thought City Church is. Are we going prosperity? I could manage the songs, I could manage all of these things. But now, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. I said, you say, you say well, but the, 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 the gospel is all about the poor. The story of the gospel is all about the poor. I have seen it. Did you notice that Jesus rebuked the rich? Jesus always cared for the poor. He said the good news is being preached to the poor. Jesus himself was poor. When he was born, he was born in a manger. He was, his parents were poor. The story of the gospel is tied with the poor. And all I've heard here is about the gospel of the rich. Can I say if you're that kind of, if you're that person, you are not totally wrong, but you're not totally right either. You're not totally wrong. Where's Elijah? He has lost himself. Because of Pastor Tolu, what Pastor Tolu said, no, you're going to make it, make it more spiritual for me. <laughs> and Pastor Tolu, we are watching that for you. But seriously, you're not totally wrong, but you're not totally right. You are correct that the gospel, the gospel uniquely lifts the dignity of the poor. That's what's happening. Remember I said that poor people aren't evil. It's poverty that is evil. And what Jesus tells us to do is to be generous towards the poor, showing you that he hates the poverty. He wants to lift the poor up. So it's true that the gospel has this, the gospel story is very much tied to the poor. I agree. But I'm not totally in agreement with you because I don't think you've looked at that gospel very well. So let me tell you a bit of story about the gospel. As far as Jesus' time on earth, what was the gospel? He was born. He died and he rose. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on earth, isn't it? Are we together? But if Jesus is to die and resurrect, he needs something. He needs to be buried. Open to 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died, that, that Christ died for our sins, what? According to the scriptures. That he was, what? Say it with me. Buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If Jesus 
he is going to rise from the dead. He needs a grave to be buried in to come. Amen. So do you remember when Jesus was being crucified? Matthew 27 tells us about this. When Jesus was being crucified, first of all, um, none of his disciples were there again. They had what we used to call beja. They had, they had scattered. Do you know why they scattered? They scattered because there was implication, there was some kind of implication of being attached to Jesus. Yes, their master being about to be sentenced and crucified. They didn't want to suffer the same fate. They said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They ran away. They didn't, were nowhere to be found. But there were brave women. The same women, some of the same women that were supporting him, they were there. They were there with Jesus. They didn't run away. But notice what he says. Many women were there. What happened? They were watching from what? Distance. You know why? They were watching from distance. One, they didn't want to enter trouble, yes. But there are two other things. And these were the women. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. You know why they didn't? I'll tell you why. Because if they needed to bury Jesus, they needed to ask for Jesus' body. Don't forget, it was Pilate that sentenced him. They couldn't just go and get Jesus' body. But they could not go because, one, they lacked power. Can you imagine just a cleaner that is here that says, I want to go and see Governor Babajide Sonwolu? Just like that. They lacked power. They couldn't go and ask for Jesus' body. So they were at a distance. But second, assuming, assuming, they even got Jesus' body. Where would they put him? You think they'll just bury... See, graves were very expensive. Not anybody owned graves. Poor people didn't own graves. Uh, they didn't own tombs. Do you understand? So where are they going to put Jesus' body? So they watched at a distance. Their poverty stopped them from having the power to go and ask. Their poverty stopped them from having a tomb to go and give him. For those who say that the gospel story is totally tied with the poor, I wish it were to prove your point. Because if it was tied to the poor, why is it that his disciples were not there? Why is it that the women stood at a distance? And so we have a problem. Where is it going to rise from? From the cross? This is the problem with poverty. But thank God. He had another disciple. Verse 57. Listen to what it says. As evening approached, there came what? Say it loud. Not loud enough. A rich man from Arimathea named what? Joseph. Who himself had become a disciple. Who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. In Mark's, in Mark's version, he says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member, I didn't just say a member, a prominent member of the council, the Jewish ruling council. He was not just a rich man, he was a powerful man. But he was not just a powerful rich man, he was one who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And what did he say? Because he was rich, because he was powerful, he did not need to talk to a secretary, he did not need to call any uncle, he did not need to do anything. He went what? Boldly to Pilate. May the Lord give us the kind of wealth that opens doors for us. May the Lord, I said, may doors be opened unto us. 
a rich man came and that rich man asked for the body of Jesus. The women could not. The disciples could not because Proverbs chapter 14 verse 20 it tells us this. It says the poor are shunned by their neighbors but the rich have what? Many friends. Pilate had friends in high places and that's why he could ask for the body of Jesus. But then he gets the body of Jesus. What is he going to do? Verse 56. Going to Pilate, he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered, I love that, he ordered. Eh? It's, it's, it's Joseph that is saying, order. He gave the order. Give them the body. And then it was given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and what? Placed it in his own brand new, tear rubber new tomb that he had cut out from the rock. took someone rich and powerful. And you don't know what was happening there. F scripture was being fulfilled. You see, because in Luke 22, he quotes Isaiah 53, when Jesus said, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus, in his death, was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the wicked. So if he was going to be buried, he was going to be buried with the wicked. But notice what he also says in Isaiah 53, verse 9. He said, so that he, may, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and what? With the what? Rich in his death. Guys, Jesus identified with the poor at his birth in Mary's womb. But he identified in his death and his resurrection as he rose from Joseph's tomb. So that he could be the savior and the Lord of both the poor and what? The rich. So that he could use the wealth of the rich so that he can preach the gospel to the poor as well. Thank you for listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people. Love Lagos.